0: Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 89, the one about the death of social media, Twitter alternatives, vertical video apps and Halloween ends. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, I'm joined all the way from France by a man who's on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio Video Podcast. Please welcome, Monsieur Pascal Fintoni.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. A pleasure. The highlight of my week, of course, to spend time with a man who's also on a mission to keep marketing simple. The Voice the Market Enthusiast podcast and the author of Catsmat and Marketing Plans. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh,
0: Pascal! This is episode eighty-nine. This we're is... eleven away from the big one hundred. I know it's just you know crazy. I mean, do you know when
1: you plan this as we did when we discussed it, give or take three years ago, and we were doing episode one, two, three, four, five, it was single digits, and we got to the, the double digits, but we seem to be approaching you know three digits. And every single time it's about you, the audience, about our viewers and listeners. It's about your challenges, your queries, your questions about the world of marketing. So please, please understand, you know, we take pleasure in preparing and planning this, but this is your show. So do send your request and your suggestions, please.
0: Yeah, we really do appreciate everybody who takes time to tweet us on Twitter, comments on the on the website to actually uh, use the, sp- the speak pipe, and also to comment and like on on the YouTube channel so Pascal we have got a packed show today I think there's gonna be a bit of a social media element to what we're gonna be talking about today and of course the film that we're gonna feature in film marketing brings to an end potentially a very long-running horror series of films but before we get to film marketing we've got a lot to pack in so let's start with in the news And we start with news
1: from Disney, who's gained a further 12 million subscribers, Roger, to his streaming service Disney Plus over the third quarter of 2022, taking its global subscriber count to over
0: 164 million. Primark has promised not to increase its prices any further before next autumn. That'll be autumn 2023, despite parent company Associate British Foods, ABF, anticipating a combined 2 billion rise in business costs this year and next. Vanish, the stain removal brand, has won Channel 4's annual Diversity in Advertising
1: award and £1 million worth of commercial advertising airtime across
0: Channel 4's properties. Pizza Express has named Stephen Taylor as CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, and this is them bringing back the Chief Marketing Officer title. And he's taking over from Chief Chief Customer Officer Shadi Halliwell, who departed in September. Mmm, well Uber has
1: teamed up with Avios. This is great news for British Airways executive club members who will be able to start collecting one Avios point for every pound spent on Uber across its car,
0: coach and train services. Following speculation after Elon Musk tweeted plans to make users pay for their blue tick verification service on Twitter, the company has confirmed plans to charge for the service. An Apple update from the company says users in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK will be able to sign up at cost of $7.99. In fact, I think that's actually gone down to $6.99 in the last 24 hours. Mm, that's the price of Disney Plus. Anyway, Tesco <laughs> is on a mission to deliver its
1: consumers joy this Christmas and has launched its annual festive campaign called The Christmas Party, addressing the difficulty of the last few years from COVID-19 to the cost of
0: living crisis. And it takes businesses an average of six weeks, that's 42 days, to hire a marketing professional. This figure does not include the notice period for the successful candidate, which is 28 days on average, meaning the typical time that passes before a vacant marketing role is filled is 70 days. My goodness. Now, Pascal, I just wanted to get your view on this Pizza Express move. Now, one of the things that we always talk about on Mark- on the um, uh, Two Geeks in the Marketing podcast is this whole thing, that marketing is not just advertising. Marketing is not just promotion. There's a whole lot more to it. It's all about understanding customers. It's all about understanding their needs and creating products to meet those needs, pricing those products, creating strategic. Strategic goals and then doing the promotion but over the years unfortunately marketing has become to a lot of companies and to a lot of people just advertising and that's meant that a lot of companies have created marketing roles which either report into the sales director or report into the customer service director and effectively just do advertising so I'm really pleased that Pizza Express is actually going back to the proper way it should be done and having a chief marketing officer who's responsible for that wide diversity of um, strategy that I explained there before. What do you think? Yeah, and what's
1: interesting is um, whilst... Because Express perhaps w- w- was not guilty or has not been guilty to date of creating strange and wonderful titles. You and I have spent some time in the show talking about what we can see on Indie.com in particular, where they have some strange and wonderful job titles that uh, create a sense of silos, so disciplines become narrower and narrower, and you end up with uh, this effect where someone is in charge of just social media or someone is in charge of just print and advertising. And they don't seem to communicate with each other. I did like the idea of a chief customer officer um, being the champion and defending the cause of the Pizza Express customers, so long as they have also, you know, a um, contribution, an active contribution into the marketing strategy. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing that people attempt to reinvent the wheel, in particular in marketing. You know, I'm sorry to say this, Roger, but you will not see this strange behavior in disciplines like HR or accounting, operations. I mean, you can name all the different departments running an organization, even the small one. People tend not to interfere and mess. But I don't know what it is about marketing, whether it's because people think because they can just faff on Facebook or because they can put together a few PowerPoint slides, they, they can have the audacity to kind of intervene in a profession that is not theirs. Oh, I understand
0: that. Yeah, it's really, really strange, isn't it? Now, looking at Tesco, Tesco's on a mission to deliver joy this Christmas. Let's face it, it's been a really tough couple of years for everybody hasn't it what with the pandemic and and now this awful cost of living crisis which is you know really hitting people in the pocket just at the time of year when people want to let their hair down a little bit but i always come to this uh, this sort of thing with a little bit of trepidation because creating a christmas advert in the current climate is going to be incredibly difficult for any brand in fact after I came up with this um, news item, I I then saw the John Lewis TV advert for the first time. I think it only debuted yesterday or the day before. And that's already split opinion, polarised opinion. Some people love it. Some people absolutely hate it. And marketing and the brand people are having to tread a very fine line when they come to their Christmas campaigns, I think.
1: Do you know what is interesting is um... – because this is our third year of production, you and I have the advantage and pleasure of looking back at previous situations of Two Gigs and Marketing Podcast. Last year, we had the same conversation and debate where on occasion, some brands were accused to be tone deaf and not to read the room because let's remind everybody, even though it's not particularly pleasurable, that Christmas 2021, we were still going through dealing with a pandemic and the aftermath of COVID-19 for some families. And what we are hearing from uh, you know, groups and, and kind of advocates for consumers is that Christmas is not always the trigger of joy and happiness mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. all and everyone. we have going to tread very, very carefully. That said, brands have to, have to communicate. So for me, uh, it's interesting. So in the past, brands were criticized for spending too much money on the advertising campaign. And currently they are being accused of essentially completely misreading uh, you know, the situation uh, nationally originally. I, I, I wonder whether, I mean, it hasn't got, Roger, the, the kind of crassness of the Black Friday adverts that we're being subjected to at the time of recording. And I can see why the Christmas adverts are almost extension of you know the, the, the Christmas shopping window display that you would see in John Lewis if you live in a big city or anywhere in the world. I don't know, I, I just wonder whether it's also a sign that you know nothing lasts forever. And you know, Are we saying that maybe give it another two or three years and there will no
0: longer be the kind of Christian science that is being produced nowadays? Yeah, I think that's a, that you know, things change. Things come around, don't they? Um, technology changes, societies change. And I think that this is one of the crucial tests for marketing expertise, I always think, is how you conduct yourself during your Christmas campaign. And I guess the last one I wanted just to touch on briefly is this whole idea that it takes an average of six weeks to hire a marketing professional and then taking into consideration their notice period and whatever, it could be, you know, 70 days. That's nearly a quarter of a year. Were you surprised by that figure? I actually I actually didn't. wasn't too surprised. I felt it was probably around that, maybe even longer if it was a more senior role. Having
1: had the chance to support customers and myself, actually, as a, as a team leader to recruit, I think the figure is about right. Mm. Um, which is then back to your comment when we started the in the news segment. If you have a strategy, if you have a plan, you will have the foresight to begin the process as early as possible. If you begin the, the process of recruiting a marketing professional when things are essentially difficult or when sales are starting to drop and so on, you, you, you're already behind, you've lost so much time. And to your point, for so 70 days, it, 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 that's a period of time where you still don't have that marketing um, kind of advice and, and um, support whilst things are still getting worse and worse. So then by the time the marketing officer joins you, you're pretty much in, in a real, real trouble, and then you're going to be expecting probably results quite swiftly. but.
0: that tension between the two forces isn't it yeah absolutely so i'm resisting the temptation to talk about elon musk because his name (laughs) is going to come up later in the show so pascal thank you for your views on the news shall we move on now to a deeper focus let's go into our content spotlight section Well, in this part of the show, Pascal and I focus on a specific piece of content. It could be a podcast, it could be a video, it could be an article. So, Pascal, what are you bringing to the table today? Right, well, I've got
1: a video for you about video marketing, more precisely video production. This is the title. This stops 95% of YouTube channels growing. There's a subtitle, if you will, Five Things You Need to Do to Grow a YouTube Channel. This is by Ed Lawrence, who is the host of Film Booth, as well as other online courses. And two reasons for for, for selecting. One, I really, really liked the production and the storytelling, the visual storytelling. So for me, learning a point of view, this is really a video worth your while watching to understand how you can actually make a... um, I would say a very practical advice, maybe a bit of strategy. So one could be deemed to be a little dry, but visually very interesting and keeps you kind of watching. So look at the style. But in terms of the advice, the five things you need to look at, according to Ed Lawrence, is about what he called the YouTube chain. Five interlinked elements and events that you need to consider to grow your channel. It begins by explaining that whilst there are five interlinked elements, most people go straight into element number four, which is about making the video. And they react to the advice out there by making the best videos. and get themselves all kind of tied in knots and stressed and so on, because they want to make it the best. And Ed Lawrence's advice is say, well, change the adjective from best to interesting. And therefore, you can begin a journey of rediscovery about subject matters, questions and challenges that your audience is going to find interesting and put less pressure on yourself to make a production, you know, the best production possible. But also, this being um, kind of uh, link number four, you've got to be very careful. You've got to start the YouTube chain from step number one. And step number one is to spend some time to reflect on your audience. Call them the avatar. You can change the, the term to archetype or even best or ideal customer profiling, Roger. But you need to kind of spend some time to reflect on what they would find interesting. And this is almost pen and paper moment or whiteboard or post it moment. This is the first element of the chain. Then to build on the strength of that chain, you need to spend some time on researching. And he recommends, and that I thought was wonderful to have that clarity of advice. He recommend 30 minutes per day looking at patterns, at trends, and essentially what is working on YouTube. And what he's arguing is that whilst this may seem a long time for you, 30 minutes a day, that will save you so much time for the next few events. So number three, it's about the planning. So now that you've done your research, you need to come up with an interesting idea or concept or a hook. Interestingly, he would recommend that this is when you start to design your thumbnail image and your title. Fascinating because most people do that last, don't they, Roger? They do the video first and to come up with a thumbnail and the title. Once you've got that, using almost this thumbnail and title, like you would a teaser poster for a film, using that as inspiration, you can then work on your storyboard, the information, the creative element, what makes you unique, and of course, put together a production plan. How are you are going to record that? Which makes number four, where normally people start in, much easier. See if you do number one, two, three in that order, number four becomes much shorter as recording, editing, obviously, is what it needs to be. And then number five of that YouTube channel, which is where really the channel and by extension, the video views and so on is going to grow, you've got to react to the reactions. You've got to study the information from your YouTube dashboard and more. And you've got to ask yourself this important question, why? When you see the data, when you see the trends, when you see the behavior kind of um, insight, ask yourself the question, why? Why is this happening that would give you more information for future videos? And finally, and that's fascinating, Roger, because this video is about five minutes, so you can all watch it again and take on board the information from Ed. It gives a top tip at the very end. But I think because of its expertise, it's almost like a throwaway comment that could be missed. And I thought it was brilliant to be able to pay attention and be rewarded for that. So he's talking about the end screen call to action, essentially inviting people to watch other videos. And for him, this is really what makes a YouTube channel grow. You want people to watch several of your videos on the roll, as opposed to just to one off and bounce again. So work hard on your end screen call to action. His recommendation is to work, obviously, on the thumbnails and the the wording to get a click-through rate of around 20%. His final words, which I think are very important, this YouTube chain is all about understanding humans and make videos they find interesting
0: time and time again. Yeah, this is really interesting for somebody like me, who is trying to grow a YouTube channel. And, and you know, like all the social media channels at the moment, as we know, it does seem to be a black art. Ed Lawrence, I watch his videos all the time. I love his style. As you say, mm. his production values are really good. I love his black backgrounds and his lighting and, and his pacing and all of that. I had I did notice, actually, in my feed yesterday, one of his latest videos, it might even be his latest video, says something like, why I've given up making videos and why you should do too. So <laughs> now I do think that that's probably a bit of a clickbaity type type of title, but I shall watch it later on to see what, uh, what angle he's getting at there but no no for somebody like me who's who's definitely into youtube it's a really salutary lesson because you know i i do it myself i get up and i think oh gosh where can i go today with my camera and i proved to myself when i went on holiday to tenerife and came up with four videos really good videos and the reason i did that was because i planned it in advance i knew where i wanted to be i knew what i wanted to shoot and therefore it It took so much less time than when I just go out and wing it. So great advice from Ed there, Pascal. Superb. So what about you? What have you discovered for us this week? Okay, this is going to be a little bit different because I've come across a really long article on vice.com by Edward Ongueso. Now, I think this will resonate with you, Pascal, because we had a conversation before we hit record this morning about the state of social media at the moment. And obviously social media plays a major part in what we do as marketers and what our customers, our clients do with their businesses. And we all rely to a certain extent on social media to communicate what we do. But you and I have often had this conversation that sometimes finding your way around the algorithm is really really hard and you said it yourself you've posted quite a few things on facebook this week about your trip to the uk because you came to the uk this week to do a presentation in durham and i've not seen any of these posts facebook has chosen not to show me these posts and you're on facebook as one of my friends we interact all the time we tag each other in when we post two geeks in a marketing podcast each week and yet Facebook is not acknowledging our friendship and our connection and is refusing to let us see. And I think that that's happening more and more across all the social media channels. So this article, the title is Social Media is Dead. Now, the difference today, Pascal, is that I'm not really going. The, the article is just really a thought provoker. It it. It talks in quite a lot of detail about algorithms. It talks quite a lot of detail about the the way that social media has developed and the way that it's changed. What I've done today is I've actually, I actually copied and pasted the article into Word for Windows so I could actually go through it and highlight bits that I want to read out to you. And as I read them out, I'm, it's not really... Um, It's not going to come to a a final point or a final summary. It's really just something that I want to see your reaction to it, Pascal, but also that everybody watching and listening, this is a thought provoker for you. And whether you agree that actually social media is maybe not dead, but it is definitely dying. So this is the opening sentence of Edward's article. What we call social media networks are anything but now that they're beginning to unravel we should ask what it would take to create social media for people not advertisers i mean actually as it stands on its own that sentence would be enough to thought to get you thinking very deeply about the way the social media is going and 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 that's that's what he's talking about throughout the article so are these social media platforms that we've been using now for not quite two decades, but getting on for about 15 years, I would say, Pascal. They definitely did start out as social platforms where people could have conversations, could share stuff like photographs, share stuff like video, or share just written word. But over time, they've become more corporate and the corporates that run them, like Meta and now Elon Musk with Twitter, are obviously obviously obsessed with advertising. And it's now nothing to do with the social aspect of these platforms. It's all to do with how to generate the advertising revenue. And that's where the algorithm comes in. And the algorithm itself is the thing that stops these things genuinely being social media channels so here's another quote from edwards article there are a lot of concerns that elon musk will soon destroy twitter but we shouldn't worry about this largely because social media networking is already dead That is, the platforms that came to define social media as we came to know it over the last decade and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, to be sure, and also Tumblr and and earlier progenitors like MySpace are largely being left in the dust and outcompeted, replaced by other platforms and their own models of online interaction. He then says, Facebook has, has, of course, imploded as years of scandals have finally caught up with it. And Instagram, while still used by many, is widely hated for serving endless sponsored content instead of, you know, your friends. Well, that's what, you know, that's what uh, we've been saying on, on Facebook and Meta. We don't, we're just not getting to see, you know. Then he's saying, despite the wishes of Musk and Zuckerberg, they are not disappearing into the metaverse, people, sorry. Despite the wishes of Musk and Zuckerberg, people are not disappearing into the metaverse or into Web3. The decentralized, tokenized, and crypto-centric internet investors, crypto bros, and capitalists have tried to will into existence with endless hype and cynical pyramid schemes designed to make themselves richer. This is, this is just really thought-provoking stuff. And... You know, I, I could read out more. Um, he, he talks about the rise of TikTok and 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 how amazingly p- popular TikToks become. And everybody's saying, "Well, actually, TikTok's an example of how social media is is working." You know, social media is working. But he actually says, "Do you know what? TikTok isn't really social media. TikTok is a viewing platform. The majority of people who go on TikTok aren't creating; they're watching." They're consuming. So it isn't a social media platform. It's, it's almost like a, 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 a um, YouTube-type thing. People just go to consume. And that's really all I'm going to read out, and then I want to get your – Your views. He also talks about some of the alternatives that are starting to develop, um, you know, alternatives to Twitter. Um, There's a very nice passage that says, actually, YouTube are probably getting it right because very surreptitiously over the last four to five months, YouTube have effectively created three channels within the YouTube experience. So you've got the full form videos, which they've always had. You've now got the Shorts channel, which is effectively their version of TikTok or Reels. But now um, YouTube also has the community tab where people can post photographs and text and polls and that sort of thing. So they're rec- they're effectively creating a social media network behind the scenes. But what he's really saying is, is it really possible? to create true social media like it used to be right at the very start when effectively we were getting views and connections for free. Now it is so, so focused on advertising, so focused on algorithm that it isn't, you can't even begin to say that it's social. It's purely a way of generating business, getting people's data and flogging them stuff. Hmm. We're gonna see more
1: and more of those articles. So I spotted a uh, five-page kind of article in a supplement of The Guardian some some weeks ago. Um, There were some articles written in online and print media. There's obviously coverage on radio, there's coverage on TV now. It's coming to to a head, Roger. Uh, And I think the point about the, the vision if we take it, take ourselves back to the 90s with Sir Tim Berners-Lee about the web being a, a, a social. And and if you listen or read any of the articles uh, and interviews he gave that in the 90s, it was about connecting people, it was about sharing knowledge and making the world a, a better place. I have said to you in a green room that it's becoming harder now to talk about the marketing benefits of social media without actually acknowledging that it's really tricky now for some brands to be on Facebook alongside the bad behavior of the platform themselves, the advertising, of course, the, the users. In the UK, as you know, we have the online safety bill being kind of uh, passing a few times in the House of Lords and Parliament, so I expect that you know next early next year, he will be law and platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all the others will be made accountable for some of the uh, poor behavior of their users because they can could, they could no longer say it's not our fault we're just publishers because you wouldn't expect the kind of um you know content being published in a, in a magazine or to be on radio and tv and since they claim to be media companies that kind of goes then you get into performance and all my customers, all my customers tell me that if they compare you know, performance year on year, whilst they are in fact doing a better job with content creation and engagement, the performance of their social media campaign is, is reducing over and over again. And of course, then the, the, the conclusion is, well, well we, we must advertise. Hence the expression you have to pay to play. But ultimately, you know, back to your comment, this was never designed to be an, an advertiser's billboarding exercise or a way to build like a mailing list of sorts, you know, like that's what it feels like, doesn't it? You build a mailing list, then you just blast your mailing list with offers and no one is, is asked for. So from the point of view of a social internet and web as envisioned in the nineties, those platforms have made little contribution to that, that vision beyond essentially some technical developments that are truly impressive. It is impressive to be able to video call somebody f- across the world. It is impressive to post the information the way we're doing it. So all the elements are there. But what they've not been able to do is create a safe environment. And you can use the term safe in you know in so many diff- different ways. But also the promise, Roger, I must remind you that this was going to be the domain of small business owners. This is going to be the way in which you can grow your business and Whilst there would be countless examples of people doing having success stories to share on, on those platforms, for the vast vast majority of um, of businesses, their experience currently is to spend time in planning, almost like going back to Ed Lawrence,
0: but spending time in producing and getting very little back. Yeah, absolutely right. And um, you know, I've been recommending, as I, as I know you have for the last 10 years, my clients, I'm always saying to them, you've got to have a social media strategy. You've got to be on social media. You don't have to be on everything, you know, but choose Twitter, choose LinkedIn, choose Instagram, whatever it is, wherever your customers are, that's where you should be. But now it's getting to the stage now where I actually do think that, you know, you're going to be ruling more social media platforms out than you'll be ruling social media platforms in.
1: No, absolutely. So listen, you know, you can make it work and i need to to be careful about you know your comment my reaction you, we've said it on, on this show and and beyond with our workshop and and speaking gigs there are ways in which you can make social media marketing work yeah but you need to accept that this would be a reason a modest slice of the pie chart when it comes to lead generation and and inquiries and if you have that um kind of sensible goal and image in in mind, then then I think it'd be fine. And then what we can do, you and I, is keep people informed along the way of progress across all the different platforms.
0: Fantastic, Pascal. And as always, we will keep people up to date with the latest developments. And talking about the latest developments, let's move on now to marketing tech and apps. So Pascal, what technical wonders have you unearthed for us this week?
1: You mentioned that um, I was back in the UK for a mini conference in Durham about social media. And we talked about strategies and content and mindset and storytelling and all the wonderful things that I like to include when I talk about content marketing. But there were a lot of questions about vertical videos. It seems to really fascinate people and we talked about it we talked about you know how it is different to square and landscape but also how the rules such as rule of thirds and and storytelling and so on are still very prevalent but people saying you know i just need to know if there are solutions to help me out i said well i'll do some research i will share with you but also i will mention it on two gigs and marketing podcast so I'll start with a mobile uh, phone-based solution, so this idea of doing vertical videos but also editing vertical videos on the go, if you will, um, Roger. There's a company called Light Tricks who have a mobile iOS and Android system called Video Leap, leap as in jumping, And what is really nice about this app, it is designed solely for vertical videos. It's not like the others we mentioned on the show, including my favorite one, Quick, where you have to go into the settings and find the uh, vertical uh, setting. This one is only for vertical videos, and you can edit um, really quite extensively, including sound effects and green screen effects and that kind of things. But the one thing that I did like, thinking about the audience and how time is, is obviously always in short supply, is that they have templates made, created by people who are already doing very well with vertical videos. So you can go into a section called Creators Templates and use that because it could be a trend, you can want to piggyback, or quite simply, you want to save a lot of time. The one thing that I really liked as well is that you can do some overlays quite easily with video leap. so you can add the text images and so on and create something very, very interesting. Now, I will confess, I always find it a lot easier, and that could be just history and a bit of comfort, to edit videos on the laptop. I will do the on-the-go editing, but I do favor work on the laptop. And I came across this great video editor called Veed.io, spelled dot dio because, of course, it's an app, Roger. The rule is you can't spell words properly, so <laughs> Vid.io. but jesting aside, I've been looking, I keep looking for the best video editor solution for my customers who are not, um, forgive me, Roger, keen video editors like you and I and all the professionals uh, out there. And I did settle for a while on Filmora um, Wondershare product. But this one is getting quite interesting. Now, the challenge for um, laptop based video editors is that the menu, the interface, Roger, is very kind of word heavy, it, it feels like um uh, almost like an old fashioned way of doing things. Mm. And what is lovely about vid.io, it's very visual. I would go as far as saying that if you use Canva on a regular basis, you're going to find the navigation very familiar. You know, that kind of tab menu on, on the left hand side, but everything's got icons, everything's got little kind of images to illustrate what the word means. And of course, what you can do on vid.io is select the vertical video, and then everything is just set up for you. And you can add so many elements like subtitles for YouTube videos. You can even add the progress bar for, you know, for like things like stories or Soundwave for audiograms. I can tell that vid.io and the vertical video editor has been created by people who understand social media, understand vertical videos, but understand how to create intrigue with um, the overlaying of elements. So there you have it. If you want to edit on the go on your mobile phone, video leap by Light Tricks. you've got the links on the show notes. But if, like me, you prefer the laptop and taking your time with, with a glass of wine, perhaps recommended by Roger
0: Edwards, then veed.io This is really interesting. I mean, I use both phone-based um video editing software and also i've got premiere pro on my desktop it's interesting that yesterday i decided to do a youtube short and it was a youtube short i wanted to do with quite tight editing with quite a few um shifts between scenes and after about 20 minutes of fiddling (laughs) with it wasn't video leap i was using it was a different app which i'll 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 not mention because i can't remember the name of it um I just, in the end, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to have to upload these videos to my desktop and do it on Premiere Pro because I, I just genuinely wanted to cut really quite succinctly on specific words. And my thumbs were just obviously too big for the timeline on the phone screen. I just couldn't get it to work. But there's a place for everything, and you're not always going to need to do such precision editing on your phone. So Videoleap. I always get attracted by their adverts because their adverts are always really cool, aren't they? It shows you how to uh, take somebody out of a photograph or this, you know, clone yeah. yourself so you can talk to yourself. Or there's one bit where there's a lady running along the beach and she keeps leaving like a print of herself behind as she runs along. And I always think, oh, that looks like a really cool app. I'm going to have to check that out. So, Pascal, sort of... Um, keeping with the topic that i was talking about in content spotlights i started to have a look at what would happen if twitter died because of what elon musk's up to and i mean let's face it elon musk paid an absolute utter fortune for twitter you know amount of money that i just can't get my head around and to me it just looks like he's winging it and you know, he's losing advertisers. He doesn't seem to know how he's he's going to handle his subscription service, whether it's a blue tick or a gray tick or a bright red flashing tick. It doesn't seem to know that he knows where he's going. I hope it succeeds. I genuinely do. But I did decide to have a look at what are some of the Twitter options. And one of the things that I've heard a lot of people talking about is a app called Mastodon. Um, I don't know whether you've heard of Mastodon, mm-hmm. but i believe that the day that musk was um announced as having taken over twitter they got something like a hundred thousand people jumping ship from twitter and joining mastodon and it almost broke their servers Um, well at least or some of their servers so i've joined mastodon and top level it actually just looks like a bit like twitter it's the same sort of thing you can post text only, you can post video, you can post photographs, you can do polls, you can do all sorts of things like that. The difference between Mastodon and Twitter, though, is that it's decentralized. And this is one of these terminologies that we're gonna have to start getting used to as Web3, and dare I say it, Metaverse, starts to become more prevalent. Now, Twitter is a centralized business, i.e. it's one big corporate and they own everything, just like Meta owns Facebook. And when you post on Twitter, when you post on Facebook, you are effectively building your little empire on somebody else's property. The way that Mastodon works, even though it looks like Twitter, even though it feels like Twitter, is as a massive collection of individual servers. Now, I could actually set up a part of Mastodon on my own computer and host it myself. Um, and it would be Mastodon.roger or something like that. So my Mastodon handle is roger underscore Edwards at Mastodon.scot because I've joined the Mastodon Scotland server. But there'll be a server for um, for France, there'll be a server for Spain, there'll be a, you know, there'll be a server for each town in, in France and in Spain. And that's quite interesting. But it's also a bit of a problem because... Unlike Twitter and Facebook, where because they own everything, you can immediately find everybody just by searching for them. Because Mastodon spreads people out over these different servers, I found it really difficult to try and find anybody. And that's the problem. I've posted a few things. I've tried to find a few people that I know are on there. And in the end, I've had to email them or message them on Twitter, ironically, and say, can you tell me where you are on Mastodon so I can follow you? So (laughs) it's interesting, but I don't think it's quite there yet the other one the other one is called vero or vero i don't know how you spell that v-e-r-o now again this is more this is more a clone of instagram it it, they claim to be taking you back to the original days of instagram where people just posted photographs because they love taking photographs and yeah you can do a little bit more you can put more text in this video as well but it's more back to the old days of um of Instagram. But because there's the text element as well, it does look and feel a bit like Twitter too, which is why I'm considering it as a, as a Twitter alternative. Now, it's interesting that uh, somebody recently said, Oh, you need to check out Vero. It's a really up and coming social media network. So I went onto Vero, downloaded it onto my phone, and clicked the sign up button. And I put my email address in, came up with a password, and pressed join. And it came back and said, this user is already registered. And and of course, I realized having then told it, I'd forgotten my password, and it told me what password I'd selected when I originally joined. I actually joined Vero back in 2015, believe it or not. It was there then, wow. it okay. was there then, but uh, it obviously didn't resonate with me at the time, and I must have deleted the app or forgot about it. It looks a lot better now, and again, it can be i think one of the problems that people will have shifting social networks especially if you've got big followings you know i've got nearly ten thousand followers on on twitter um that's probably the one where i've got the most followers and it's hard to find people when you go onto these new networks and it's almost like do i really want to start from scratch again on a different network so These are interesting, check them out, Mastodon and Vero, and see whether you think it would be worth putting the time in to start building a following on an alternative to Twitter. Thank you very much for doing the research.
1: It's gonna be fascinating for the next few years. I think there's gonna be three three groups. I mean, that's not me being clever, that's just logic. Those who remove themselves completely from social media platforms. Those who will move on to an alternative and those are going to stay because of the changes and barriers to to changing mm. platforms, mm. such as the strong following, as well as um, simply lack of time or, or just you know a, a bit of apathy as well, which has served people like the search engines and many other platforms very
0: well over the years. Absolutely right. So Pascal, we always say this on the show: we wouldn't be where we are today unless people in the past had done marvelous inventive creative things so let's fire up the flux capacitor let's set the controls of the TARDIS let's head back in time to this week in history
1: in 1849 John Watkins Brett forms the English Channel submarine telegraph company what a mouthful and two years later the first public message was sent on the English Channel
0: between Dover England and Calais France in 1972, Skylab 3 carrying a crew of three astronauts was launched from Cape Canaveral on an 84-day mission that re- remained the longest American spaceflight for over two decades. 84 until, days. Yeah, until Norm Thagard broke that aboard Mir in 1995. And in 2003, Britney Spears, at 21 years old, becomes the youngest singer together, star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In 2008, the first film adaptation of The Twilight Saga, the vampire-themed series of novels for teenagers written by Stephanie Meyer, premieres in Los Angeles. So, Pascal, this English Channel Submarine Telegraph Company, which... (laughs) Gosh, try saying that after a couple of glasses of wine. I've always been fascinated about when they say there's these cables being laid under the sea and, you know, there's gas cables, there's telecommunication tables. How how did they actually, is, is it literally a boat going along with a cable just dropping off the back and them unraveling it? Or do they actually have to send divers down to the seabed and actually, I don't know, clamp it actually to the seabed? Oh, no,
1: it is actually um, in a boat with this massive kind of rolled up cable mm. at the back. If you ever come back to the Northeast to come and visit uh, Richard and I, I'll take you to North Shields because that's where, the, where one of the companies um, is based there. And those rolls are just enormous. I mean, they're like the size of a small house and you've got those massive cables all rolled out. And they are literally being laid at the bottom of of, of the sea with connectors and so on, which led to some of the complications with, um, you know, communication. And and for me, what is fascinating is that clearly, um, probably even before 1849, there was this vision of connecting, you know, the short distance between France and England is is that one. And there was even conversations about tunneling, so, you know, and creating, you know, tunnels, having uh, literally uh, chimneys popping uh, above the, the sea levels to be able to have some air, air circulations and so on. And people have been doing it for such a while. But what is interesting about this story is that it failed many times. So what this doesn't tell you, Roger, is the fact that two years later, they did send a message that was received. But two days later, the cable snapped. <laughs> and then they had to do it again and two years later they went back again and then they lasted a few few days and the cable snapped again. And the message is that that said, they didn't give up mm. and all the companies take over. And I suppose part of this week in history is looking at, you know, the contribution because of course now the whole internet is Primarily, uh, subsea cables. There is satellite communication, of course, but you and I—I'm in France, you're in the UK. The communication is done primarily through th- those cables because centuries ago, somebody gave a go, and you could argue it was a failure, but people just
0: kept going. <laughs> so it's—I just—it's I, it, always been one of those fascinating questions that I've never found the answer to, and I suppose it just is bleedingly obvious that that's the way that they would do it i was intrigued by skylab skylab's one of those childhood memories and i'm pretty sure that i had an airfix model kit version of skylab I, I can see it now i can see the box and and the image i have of skylab is that they do you remember the the uh sort of um lunar module that used to used to go mm. down onto the moon and then Um, it used to go back up and attach to the 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 flight part and the flight part basically was just like a little bit of a rocket and then the, the nose cone part of the of that came back to earth and did the splashdown that was the way that they used to get up to Skylab so it was always that almost like lunar module looking uh spacecraft that used to dock with Skylab, and Skylab had these two great big solar panels that used to stick out at the side. And I just remember that was before Star Wars, that was before Space 1999 and, and, and some of those late '70s sort of things that redefined science fiction. And here was something real a real spaceship, a real lunar module uh, sort of thing going up and down to this space station. That was remarkable stuff. And maybe, you know, the reality of Skylab ultimately contributed to the fiction of Star Wars.
1: Oh, indeed, and, you know, forgive me, I reacted because I couldn't help you when you read the, the news item about 84 days. That feels so incredibly long. Mm-hmm. You know, incredibly long in 1972, Right? I mean, the technology was so, uh, I mean, compared to what we can do now with a mobile phone, it doesn't kind of compare. And therefore, the, for me, it's all to do with the preparation, the planning, the training, but also the, the belief. You had to have literally faith that this was going to go well because <laughs> yeah. there was absolutely no evidence, no track record to, to suggest that. I would suggest that when they went back count again and you read out, you know, by the, the mere. Uh, program in 95 and later, at least they could kind of look at the last few decades and reassure themselves that this was going to go okay. But those early kind of pioneers in terms of space travel, what courage.
0: Yeah, they were actually in Skylab for longer than it takes to recruit a marketing professional. (laughs) My goodness, my goodness. Okay, Pascal, let's bring ourselves right up to date now and head into our creator shoutouts. Okay, Pascal, who is getting your shoutout this week? So I'm really pleased to introduce
1: you, viewers and listeners, to Osman Hussein, who is the head of content marketing at the company called Content Harmony. Is also the author of content brief templates, nineteen free downloads and examples. Now, this is very timely because I've been spending a lot of time helping customers. Uh, as a consultant around briefing themselves, if they are solopreneurs or briefing their teams about the content production, because all too often people are using kind of shorthand style descriptions or just the word video or the word article, and that's just not enough. To either help someone imagine what you have in mind or even to stimulate your own imagination. So, a, a briefing document that explains what the content is to achieve and the elements and so on is very, very important. But what Osman Hussein is saying is that there can be some time, very time consuming or you know, just difficult to pull together. So, a template can really help you out. And he's done. The work and his research, and he has now nineteen different companies and, let's say, template creators to recommend as part of this article. Now, admittedly, he will also suggest the template from Content Harmony, but that's only one out of the nineteen. What is interesting about the article, for me, learning point point of view, Roger, is that not only as he found them and as he listed the the different templates, but there is a description. He's also taken the trouble to qualify who the user uh, should be by creating what you call a style guide. Is it for professional? Is it for beginners? Is it for someone working in education? Is it something that is corporate? Is it relaxed? So I think that's really uh, interesting to add that as part of the deliberation is also qualifying the format. Do you want a PDF? Do you want Google Docs? Do you want MS Word? So you can see a lot of work has gone in creating that. And then you have examples like, well, as I mentioned, the content Almony's own free content brief template, but also other brands that oddly we've mentioned on the show. Uh, Portent it has its own brief template, Convince and Convert, the company run by Jay Bear, it's there, Orbit Media smart blog, um, blogger, but also we have individuals, Daniel Chung, Cameron Jenkins, and so it goes on. So frankly everyone, if you cannot kind of find one template that suits your own style and and kind of vision, you are not looking hard enough. Thank you again to uh, Osman Houston because that has taken a lot of time to create. And from my point of view, the timing is perfect, because I was recommending that people should, in preparation for 2023, uh, learn to create a better brief, either for themselves or their colleagues.
0: Fantastic. Pascal, this week I'm going to give a shout-out to a travel blogger, and I say the word blog rather than the word vlog here. Now, Mm. as you know, I do follow quite a lot of travel vloggers on YouTube, and this week I'm giving a shout-out for a gentleman called Roland Millward. Now, I've known Roland on social media for quite a long time. My memory's a bit hazy. I'm pretty convinced that I met Roland on Snapchat, believe it or not when I had a a brief dalliance with Snapchat back in the uh, mid mid two thousand and tens uh, I think he was involved in a in a group set up by a guy called Mark Shaw, but I might be wrong so if L- Roland's listening to this, I'm sure he'll correct me with that now Roland is writing a travel blog, and do you know it is an absolute pleasure to actually read a travel blog, as opposed to watching a travel vlog. Now, I love watching travel vlogs, but there's nothing better than immersing yourself in the written thoughts of people who travel. And Roland's recently retired, I saw his retirement announcement on LinkedIn, and he seems to have gone all in on this travel blog now. Now, admittedly, he also does have a travel podcast and he has done some travel videos on youtube but he's focusing on the written word and it's just so refreshing pascal to read people people's thoughts about travel it's such a different way to experience the way that they see the world and it just reminded me just reading roland's stuff how powerful the written word still can be in a world where we're surrounded by moving images so i would really recommend and i'm going to leave the uh, the link in the show notes obviously i would really recommend people read roland's travel blog it, it's called roland's travels or 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 indeed anybody who has a travel blog give it a read and it will reignite your belief and the senses on how powerful the written word can be. And I think that when people travel, you know, the emotions that get generated, the feelings that get generated, and when you pour that out onto the page or onto a screen in words, it can often be more powerful than video. Wow, and do you know what's interesting?
1: You reminding me of when I began my career as a training speaker, moving from being a practitioner to being a, suppose, knowledge um, sharer. My recommendation was to learn how to blog for business, start a travel blog. Ah, Because you'd be free of all the constraints. You'd be free of this fear of, uh, potentially, the opinion of others, particularly from from your industry. And you might discover, actually, a a writing style that you can then use for business
0: purposes. That's really interesting. It's really interesting. Pascal, we're here. It's time to move on to film marketing. So Pascal, this week we're gonna be talking about a film which is the final film in a franchise that goes back to 1978. We're gonna be talking about Halloween Ends and here is the teaser trailer. good is it to see jamie lee curtis again do you know i was thinking about people who are listening to the podcast
1: version that would have been quite a um, oral experience that <laughs> teaser trailer um do you know it, it's just incredible i would forgotten um that the first one was 1970 and if i always get it wrong with the fog which is uh, 1980 because actually i first saw jimmy curtis in the fog and i saw halloween a lot later, maybe in the mid-80s, alongside all the other kind of 80s horror classics and sl- slasher movie. Although I'm as far saying that this is not a slasher movie. I think
0: Halloween is better than that. Yeah, I think um, I mean the original Halloween is a is just a classic, isn't it? It, mm. it set the template for so many different films going forward, like Nightmare on Elm Street, obviously. Um, even the Scream movies were were, were a takeoff, weren't they? And and Scary Movie and all those slasher films that have come since. But it had a certain amount of class to it, didn't it? The original Halloween, when, whether it was Donald Pleasance who was just such a great character actor anyway and and it was genuinely scary it was genuinely tense now i have to put my hands up pascal and say i haven't seen halloween ends yet have you no no not
1: at all that's a pleasure yeah. of doing film marketing but yeah. differently we are talking a movie that was released at the time of recording four weeks ago yeah it seems to have been the um almost the the way they've done things, not always mid-October, two weeks before Halloween. Mm. Can I just take us back very briefly to 1978 Mm -hmm. and suggest to you that uh, John Carpenter and Jabra Hill, perhaps um, intuitively, were already marketing geniuses because you had a simple title, but also piggybacking a national event that people can relate to. The post at the time was literally the pumpkin, and the, the the knife. You also had audio branding. I mean, that theme tune from John Carpenter uh, for Halloween. The signature. It's a signature
0: um, audio branding, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely right. And it's and it's interesting. I mean, we we often say, say about how things change. You know, back in the late seventies when this film came out. I mean, I don't remember Halloween being a big thing in the UK at all. You know it was never something that i mean i never my parents never took me out doing trick or treats and anything like that but of course today the that that sort of us obsession with halloween i mean let's face it in in the us the entire country gets a makeover doesn't it mm. and never before have i noticed it until this year now just down the road i may mean, I always have a laugh there's a couple uh down the road who always go overkill at christmas you know they have great big sort of illuminations outside their houses they have inflatable Santa clauses and everything and it it, sometimes I think oh for goodness sake you're really taking this too far well they these people this time they had this gigantic great big spider's web sort of coming from the roof down onto the ground and this gigantic spider sort of halfway up it and they had all these other cobwebs and they had ghosts billowing in the wind and this that and they are thinking for goodness sake and then on Halloween itself (laughs) on Halloween in itself, there were absolutely armies of kids out dressed up as ghouls, as vampires, as werewolves and ghosts and whatever it might be, doing the whole trick or treat thing. So socially, Halloween now today is a, is a much 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 bigger thing in the UK than it was when the original Halloween came out. That that's my take on it anyway. No,
1: absolutely, but but you know what? What is interesting? We should have done is dress as the shape as it is known and just go and scare them away. You know, yeah. uh, you're right. So that means that if somebody is, is introduced to Halloween for the first time with Halloween ends, they have the pleasure of going back to 1978 because the thread through is, of course, the character of Laurie Strode played by mm-hmm. Jim Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the strap line for this movie if you look at it, is um, literally, this is Laurie Strode's Last Stand, mm-hmm. and they're playing on the nice phonetics of Laurie Strode and Last Stand. So you need then to be able to understand the journey, you need to go back to 1978 and and watch all, all the others. Now, the, the Halloween franchise has had some weird twists and turns, uh, I will confess. And personally, I've only stuck with the storyline uh, where Jim Lee Curtis is present. I just mm-hmm. couldn't really manage the, the others uh i'm particularly fond i will confess of the 1998 um, sorry halloween h20 as it mm-hmm. used to be called at the time mm-hmm. and i thought that was a really a very very good one and personally i feel like i need to go back to the the reboot i think you know i can use the term because halloween was 2018 you had last year halloween kills and this year halloween ends and to be able to enjoy this one because i'm planning to i want to go back to the other two and really see what they've done
0: with the work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what do you think stands out from the marketing of this one for me i'm
1: so pleased because that's something that you and i've mentioned time and time again we have an official website i mean uh. i almost feel like i should ask team to add a um, round of applause sound effects because <laughs> you and i've reviewed now the better part of um, 88 movies and every time we've said where's the website or wow, well, is that all you've done with the website? So you know, can I just say, I'm pleased that there is a website like a like a focal point to the marketing campaign. And yes, they have the social media uh, with the hashtag Halloween ends. And for me, this back to how, what have they done? So they've had a bit of a premiere campaign, which was very brief, but actually had a quite a bit of impact. But when it comes to the website itself, it's just full of the video content. That's one element that I want to look at with you. Then there is a competition. Another thing that we can investigate. They have also a retro video game mm. that we can we can look into. And then, in addition to that, you know the the, the elements of behind the scenes and and, and the likes. And what they've done really, really well, I think, with, with the campaign is created a, a visual style. You feel like you're entering the world of Halloween and potentially beyond um, the, the franchise. So when you go into the um, the website at the time of recording, there are actually quite a lot of video content. You have the official teaser trailer that we watched a, a, a moment ago. Then you have a combination of additional trailers and feature it. And there is a kind of running theme. There's a light motive around the term final. So you have a video called The Final Reckoning. You have the final trailer. <laughs> you have the final battle. And actually, when you watch the... Um, you know, the, the kind of behind the scenes and kind of uh, interviews, Jimmy Lee Curtis is seen wearing a
0: T-shirt with the term, the final girl. <laughs> that's all very good, isn't it? I mean, consistency is, is perfect. And I guess that, again, there has been that consistency of the Michael Myers character, if that's the right way to call him, monster uh, protagonist all the way through the entire franchise. Um, but what they're saying is, in the in the strap lines to this, or at least in some of the feedback that I've got, that this isn't really about Michael Myers, is it? It is more about Laurie Stroud, Low- Lowry Stroud than about yeah. the monster.
1: When, Well, in fact, there's been some really interesting debates, because that's the power of, of today's kind of um, economy and, and, and marketing where people can go online and expose views. So when the teaser trailer came out, Roger, there was a strapline, which is uh, animation, uh, t- text animation, which was their saga comes to an end. Mm, so there was a plural. Awesome. So mm. people went crazy saying, well, who 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 are we talking about? Just Laurie or Laurie and, and Michael? Is it actually potentially the filmmakers themselves. So is this almost something a bit meta, if I may use the term, where we're talking about the end of the collaboration between John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, and all the others, you know, the writers like Deborah Hill, and even John Carpenter's uh, son, I think, is working on the music as well. Is it there, Saga, is coming to an end? I think it's just that
0: the different layers and dimensions are fascinating to observe. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it is that, isn't it? I hadn't really... Grasped that until you just said it there, but they've really put together quite a lot of content here in addition to the um, the um Teaser trailer and the official trailer and the final trailer and and you've also already mentioned the, the video game and the website Which we'll come to in a moment, but there's quite a lot of of other videos been put out as here as well That they've been drip feeding out over the run-up isn't there like the there's the the onset videos, Mm -hmm. the the sort of behind-the-scenes sort of videos. To me, it seems like they've done more than some of the uh, the other films that we've uh, reviewed recently. There's a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff going on there. Is that because it is such a long-lived franchise and people are just interested in what's going on behind the scenes? I think it actually is an
1: echo of the emotions about Mm -hmm. creating Mm -hmm. this movie and this being the final one, Mm -hmm. and almost saying... Um, we need to give a bit more to the fans. Um, and it feels very genuine as well but when you look at the interviews and listen to them. It feels like they are all mightily aware that this is the end. And there, there is one, I think, that I've seen um, where... It's a wrap for Jimmy Lee Curtis and mm-hmm. all the cast and crew are outside the house cheering and clapping. Mm-hmm. And there's just tears on everybody's faces because it's just a monumental one. And to me, that's also what it feels like, the anticipation watching this film. It's a bit like when you know you watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, so you've got the Fellowship first and you've got the Two Towers. But Return of the King... It feels sad because you know that the story's coming to an end. And uh, and so I think that um, that's what happened is that you realise now this is an important moment in time from the cinema cinema point of view because this is it. This is the end. And we've got to capture
0: and share as much as possible. Yeah. So let's have a look at that video game because I'm – Absolutely intrigued by this and obviously drawn to the photographs that you've unearthed in your research. I mean, it genuinely does look like a 1980s sort of platformer, doesn't it? This is perfect,
1: isn't it? They they, they had to go that way. They had yeah. to say, if you've been watching, uh, or if you go back to 1978 and 80 and all the others, this is a kind of game you would have to have gone into those arcade yeah. venues and put your you know coins into the machine and then play the game. And, of course, these, these are the games. Remember where if if you died, you start from the beginning again. There's that real frustration of yes. those retro games. So, yes, yeah, so, so it begins with that landing page where you have – the shape and Laurie almost back to back. You know, this is the face of and the the um, kind of title fight like hell, press go. <laughs> and then off you go into this very retro uh, escape game where you, you, you control the character of Laurie Strode. You can move from left to right. And as was the case in terms of uh, game design back then, it just scrolls up and you have to dodge obstacles and, and grab weapons to essentially slow down um, the shape. Uh, I have to confess I played a lot And I'm not very good at this one. I think I managed managed to stay alive maybe about three, four minutes before I'm eventually killed by Michael Myers and then had to go all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> That's right. So, so frustrating. Now, the other thing that was fascinating to see on the website, which is why I'm so delighted that the website's still live, and can I just implore the filmmakers to leave it alone? Leave
0: it alone, keep it there. <laughs> Don't take it down.
1: Yeah, so they've invited people to take part in what they call the Halloween Ends, Killer Reels sweepstakes. Oh. So what you had to do, You had to submit a vertical video of all videos using the hashtag stripstakes and Halloween ends, um, a video that was inspired by the movie and the trailers um, of of the things. So people submitted being attacked or being chased around the house and that kind of things. So you you would do that. You would post it on social media, creating, of course, viral marketing, and that was a prize. Now, the prize, of course, it did include the kind of Halloween ends swag, but most importantly, (laughs) a
0: video call, with Jamie Lee Curtis. Wow! I mean, I, I was just thinking that. What would you say? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine you, you, the the anticipation and the build up of that? And then you've got the screen goes live, and there's Jamie Lee Curtis. I'd just you'd be sitting there just blubbering, wouldn't you? What am I going to say?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm
0: with you. I think you would need to prepare and maybe
1: walk around the block a few times. Um, what I will say, having observed obviously uh, Jiminy Curtis in, in interview mode, I think she'll do an amazing job to put you at ease. Yeah, and you yeah. and would, would have a blast. I mean, personally, I would ask if I could record it just for posterity and and just not published online, but just, you know, it was often when you have friends over. Like I said, did you know that one day I had a video call with Jimmy Lee Curtis? Nah, you did not. Well, let me show you this, you know.
0: (laughs) That's so funny. That's so funny. So what else have we got? We've got uh, on-screen interviews on IMDb. So that has been fascinating, and
1: maybe if I may, um, you know, have the audacity to suggest to the filmmakers that the website could do a better job to capture the many, many, many online interviews that are being spread around the internet that are so hard to find, unless the algorithm and bit of luck, you know, uh, plays your part. So. The two that I want to mention, and then there's like a, a main message for all of us, is the IMDb on-the-scene um, interview. Mm-hmm. So you had Jiminy Curtis and all the cast members being interviewed by the team at IMDb, um, which I may remind everybody, started as a little database from someone in Bristol in, in the UK. So, you know, what a journey for all of them. But what I thought was fascinating was that in that interview, there's like a, a 10, 15-second little clips from, from, the, uh, from the movie with the following line, some say I am the hero, some say I provoked him. (laughs) And that got the fans to speculate and debate like
0: wildfire for days and weeks on end. That's really, really cool, isn't it? Now, one interesting thing is there was also an exclusive, another exclusive, Jamie Lee Curtis interview on Fandango, wasn't Mm. there? Where she's going through her favorite behind the scenes moments from the entire Halloween franchise. That teaches us a bit of a lesson that I guess film marketers need to need to be aware that there are all sorts of different channels out there. Yeah. Perhaps with slightly different audiences, different demographics, I guess, different interests. So the opportunity does exist for you to create different content for these different destinations. I think that's exactly right, Roger. And it feels us so though back to
1: everything we've discussed today. This idea of you know list the, the platform from IMDb you know to Fandango to uh, you know all the others and literally put a little brief against them you know what are we going to do? There's a bit different, and and personally as well, I love the idea that they asked her to go through the entire Halloween franchise. That suggests again this idea of the forty-four year journey and you know back to this idea of you know their saga comes to an end. It's all kind of interlinked and it's a real pleasure as a fan, but also as a marketer to discover those little moments of true marketing (laughs) insight. thinking it all
0: makes sense and all this is intentional. Yeah, and and it's, I suppose it goes back to something we said earlier in the podcast. You know, you can't be on all social media pa- platforms you, you, unless you've got massive, massive, massive resources, and most small businesses don't. So you have to choose to go where your customers are, and it's the same sort of concept here, isn't it? You know, if you're a big, massive film production company, then maybe you have got the resources and the budget to put content out on every single platform, but if you're a smaller uh, company, you know, independent, whatever it might be, you're still going to have to make those marketing choices of deciding what the best platforms are in order to get your clip, your teaser trailer, whatever it might be, in front of the right audience for you. What I like
1: about uh, our reflection on, on the, the marketing as well, and you, and you can, you know, I can obviously hear and see, you know, what has been unsaid about the, the marketing foresight and planning and so on it's so reminiscent of good old-fashioned PR mm-hmm. about choosing different print channels, choosing different TV and radio channels, but finding a way for you know whatever's being written down to be a little different from one magazine to the next, from newspaper to the next. And I think maybe the, the, the reminder here, the message is around this idea of True. You could create one video or one written form of content and use it to be broadcasted across all channels as is, or you can spend just enough time to stop yourself from doing that and find, you know, like I say an angle an or a hook. Sorry, that could make it a bit different. And I don't know. It just always surprises me how much we can learn from film marketing campaigns to and take it back to completely different
0: sectors altogether. Absolutely right. Now, Pascal, there is one final piece of content. There's one final <laughs> yes. piece of content that they've put together. And we're going to use that to close the show. So, normally we would wrap up by saying, go out there and do, make sure that your marketing's done right and all of that sort of thing. I still want to say, Thank you to everybody who's watched today's show and who's listened to today's show and do please get in touch. If you've got any comments, if you've got any suggestions through all the usual channels. But for now, Pascal, we're going to leave the final word from the final girl.
2: So it's hard to put into words what your 44 years of love and support has meant to me. I was 19 years old when John Carpenter and the late great Deborah Hill cast me in Halloween in 1978. The film gave me an opening into a career that I never expected. And each movie and work experience led to another and the beautiful flow and creativity and community that has now been my career. I've worked with so many talented directors, and actors, and fabulous crews of technicians, artists, and creative people who love the daily grind of making movies. And with you, the audiences, I've had such a bond. We've cried together, we've laughed together, we've screamed together. And we've had experiences that only horror movies can give you. Horror films allow you to confront what you can't control. And they are cathartic and transformative. And so now I say goodbye and thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you who has carried Laurie Strode as a sister, a daughter and a friend. Halloween ends the conclusion of David Gordon Green's magnificent trilogy arrives in theaters and streams exclusively on Peacock on October 14th. And tonight I'm thrilled to share a sneak peek with you. Now, I'm gonna let the 44 years of movies be my lasting statement. And let this film be my final girl, final action. But before I do, I just wanna say again, thank you and happy Halloween everyone.